We come this evening to the end of our series we've been doing since Easter on the subject of Christian maturity. And uh, we come to think tonight about the final goal, the target, the attainment, the final realization of Christian maturity. Let me say, although we are coming to the end of this series, let me remind you all that I said this back at the end of April when we began this series, there's a sense in which all Christian ministry, all ministry to the church, to the flock of God, is ministry that is aimed at Christian maturity, at likeness to Jesus Christ. The text that I think proves that for us would be a text like Colossians 1 verse 28, where Paul says of Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? This is the goal. This is the goal of every pastor. This is Simon's goal as a pastor. It's my goal as a pastor, as a shepherd. It's the goal of everyone every one of us who is concerned about growth to godliness. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But I want tonight to to leave Paul and come to John. I was unsure whether to preach from 1 Corinthians 13 or from 1 John 3, but I've uh, plumped for John in the end after a bit of, uh, uh, of prayer and thought about it. And I want to look particularly at verse 2 this evening of chapter 3. So 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, I'll read it again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And I've tried to bring out in that reading the three points. They're lifted straight out of the text. Now, not yet, and when he appears. Okay? Three great points in time. The now, not yet, and when he appears. So let's start with now. And we need, brothers and sisters, so, so much to know what's true of us as Christians now. And John says here in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, in the present, at this instant. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And here is the Apostle John. I remember, I I feel emotional because this was the very first text I ever, ever, ever preached on. And uh, this is going back to November 1991. I was a wee laddie, or not quite, a wee laddie of 22. And I preached at a ladies' meeting at a little church just over the Red Hue Bridge on the River Tyne to a little group of ladies. It was my first ever sermon. I was as terrified as you can imagine. And and I preached this, and, well, the the Lord is gracious, isn't he? And I remember thinking then, the the Apostle John is an old man here. He's a very old man, probably 80s, 90s. But he can't get over this fact that he's a child of God. 
And he, he almost tells himself this. If you look at the way he speaks, the way he writes in, in, in verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then he says it again in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. We're not just called God's children. It's not a mere title. It's not an honorary ascription that doesn't mean anything. It means everything. The Christian believer is a child of God. You and I have every right to call God Father. That wonderful book that's shown in Little Fishes sometimes, that, that uh, high-caste Muslim lady who said, I dared to call him Father. Well, let's dare to call him Father. Abba Father. But when John says children of God, the word he uses for children, you need to understand this, it really means physical offspring, posterity, children by generation, children begotten of God. It's the language we recognize from the prologue to John's gospel, those soaring words of John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, born, hear the word born, you're born, I'm born of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The teaching that John brings us here is not the teaching of adoption. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? That we're adopted. But here's something that's biological almost in its intensity. We are born. We are children of God. Now. It's not only a privilege and a status, it's a nature. The child of any human father is marked out as that child in legal terms. There are fathers here tonight and there are children here tonight. And the children bear the name of their father. They are registered as children of their father and of their mother. But it's more than being registered and being legally counted as children, isn't it? They are children. They are by nature children. They share in their father's likeness. A child is born. And people say, oh, look at his little nose, just like his dad, just like his mum, whatever it might be. Genetically, they look like their parents. They are children of their father and of their mother. Understand this then. The Christian believer is a spiritual child of God. Born by the Spirit of God. Renewed, sanctified, given the mind of God, the mind of Christ. Given a new heart. Given a new nature. Changed. We thought about that this morning, didn't we? Repentance. What is repentance? It's a change. 
But it's a change that is worked in us, not as we try and work it ourselves through some great effort of self-denial or effort, nothing like that, born from above, given to us from Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Children of God, not merely a new status, justified and and forgiven and adopted and all of those things. They're true. They're true. We are, we are forgiven. We are justified. We are adopted. All of that is true. But we have a new birth. A new heart. New inclinations. New desires. A renewed mind. And this is now. This is in the present. That's why all the writers of the New Testament give instructions to believers which say to them things like, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Demonstrate the family likeness to God in what you do, in what you say, in what you think. Let me emphasize yet again, Christian believer, you are now presently a child of God. Hold on to that. That's the now. It's a wonderful now. But there's more than a now. There's secondly, a not yet. And John adds in verse 2 here, what we will be has not yet appeared. And many Christians will talk about the, the now and the not yet. The already and the not yet. The tension between those two things. We need to be able to understand and navigate that tension. And in a sense, that tension is found right here in this verse. There are wonderful things which are true of you and me now. Praise God. Let's not downplay them. But there are other things which are not yet true of us. And let's think about those for a little while. And we do so because we are longing for them. We are not yet what we are going to be. The best is yet to come. There is about every one of us here who is a Christian an incompleteness, a partialness, if that's a word, an immaturity. There is further development and completion which lies ahead. And we can use an analogy from ordinary human biological life. Take a child of any age. You can go to a 17-year-old child all the way down to a, to a newborn baby. And this child, little illustration over here, this child is a child of her father by nature, by physical descent. And every child is a child of their father and of their mother, and that doesn't change from... Well, from conception onwards, they will always be neither more nor less a child of their father. But we know, don't we, that children grow up. There's a process of maturity. There's a developing. It must take place. As children more and more begin to resemble their their adult parents and grow up into adulthood. And for everyone who is a child, there is a longing 
frustration at times, to want to reach adulthood, to be rid of all the limitations of childhood. And for all of us, and I'm talking now about everybody of every age here, from the oldest to the youngest, there are limitations which we experience because we are in the not-yet territory. We still have to deal with temptation and the sin which clings so closely. We still have to contend with the world and the flesh and the devil on a daily basis because we're in the not-yet territory. It's worth remembering that. Let's not be surprised when we are assailed with doubts and horrible temptations and when we are even driven to sin we have to say look this is still part of the not yet zone in which we're living for the time being but there is a particular kind of limitation or incompleteness isn't there that John is certainly drawing our attention to here look at the way he speaks beloved we are God's children now And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. He's talking a lot about appearing, about seeing, about sensing, about sight, about eyes. And this is the not yet situation that we're all in, isn't it? We have to walk by faith and not by sight. We have to walk by faith and not by sight at this present stage. Let me put it to you like this. If we had to walk by sight alone, if we had to walk the Christian life, live the Christian life, by what we saw, what we heard, what we sensed, what we saw in ourselves and around us, by our mere physical senses, wouldn't we all feel like giving up? There is nothing in the realm of sight or sense to encourage us at all as Christians. I mean this. We look inside. We look at our lives. And we look around at the world. And we find little or nothing that really, really spurs us on the way to live the Christian life. If we were to walk by sight alone and not by faith, we would be miserable, wouldn't we? You see, we need faith. We live by faith. We walk by faith. We grow by faith. And faith it is that causes us to grow as we feed by faith on the promises of God, on Jesus Christ himself. We mustn't downplay faith. John doesn't do that. He goes on to say in chapter 5 and verse 4 that this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. What does he mean by that? He means that as we receive the heavenly message, the gospel message, that Jesus Christ is a savior for all who believe, And everything that comes with that, that's what feeds our souls. That's what keeps us going. That's what gives us hope. We don't see him yet. We have to live on Jesus Christ by faith. But Jesus is able to make us live by faith. It's sufficient. 
It is sufficient for as long as we live in this present life. And yet, this not yet is still there, isn't it? And it takes this form. We long to be able to see. We can't wait to have our eyes opened fully and see everything and see him and be satisfied and be full of joy. I've referred to it before, I'm sure, not that long ago, but there's this wonderful YouTube video that I've seen a few times. It's very, very powerful of this boy of about 10 who's only ever seen black and white. He has some genetic defect. He can't see color. And one day his parents managed to get for him a pair of glasses that means he can now, for the first time in his 10 years, actually see color. It's a summer evening in some beautiful park somewhere in the States, and he he receives these glasses, and he puts them on, and there's a second or two of mystified, uh, can't quite work what's going on here, and then the tears come, the emotion comes, the, the sense of overwhelming this is so beautiful. This is, this is beyond anything I've ever imagined. I can actually see. I can see the color of the grass. I can, I can see the color of the sky. I can see the color of my parents' eyes. I can, I, can, I can see red, blue, green, yellow, all the shades of color. I know, what, I know what color means. I know what seeing really means. And Christian brothers and sisters, that's where we are, isn't it? We, we're longing to be there. To put on those glasses and see things as they really are. And I want to come to that with my final point now. When he appears. When he appears. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. God the Creator, made you and me with eyes. And ears, and nose, and mouth, and hands, five senses. And they're not redundant. They're not pointless. They're there for a reason. At the moment, we all walk by faith and not by sight and not by sense. We've never seen Jesus. We've never heard his actual voice. We've not reached out to hold him and touch him. But one day we will. And this Apostle John is an apostle who loves to talk about the senses. If you were to turn back to the very beginning of his letter, you'll see exactly what I mean. He begins with a celebration of how his senses at one time feasted on the incarnate Jesus himself. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. What's John saying? He's saying, you know, I, an old man now, I tell you, readers of a new generation, that years and years ago, this Jesus came into the world and I saw him and I touched him and I heard him. He came into this world, a visible, 
physical, tangible, concrete, flesh and blood saviour. I was there when he died. I saw the blood and water from his riven side which flowed. My senses, my sight detected these things. I saw him and let me tell you this, he says, one day, soon and very soon, you and we are going to see the king. We're going to see him with our eyes. Oh, we can't wait, says the Christian. I can't wait to see him. Isn't that the hope and longing of every Christian heart? You think of that great miracle that Jesus performed, John chapter 9. In many ways, the miracle that receives the longest, the longest description and narrative of any miracle that we have in the Gospels, it occupies the whole of John chapter 9. And it's that giving of sight to a man who is born blind. And do you remember how that man himself says something remarkable uh, in, in, that, uh, in that narrative? He says to those who are accusing Jesus and looking to trap this man, and he says to them with astonishing courage and boldness, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now you stop and think for a moment. Two chapters later we have the raising of Lazarus. You might say, and indeed we probably should say, a greater miracle but not an unprecedented miracle. The dead had been raised before in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha and in the ministry of Jesus, Jairus' daughter, the widow of nine son. But this, this, there had been blind men given sight before, but never a man born blind. What a miracle. What glory. Now my eyes have seen you. And this is why our greatest hope, and this is why, Christian friend, your highest and best joy of all can be nothing greater or better than this, when he appears. When he appears. The day when you set your eyes on the face of Jesus the day when faith finally and fully gives way to sight. When we no longer see through a glass darkly, viewing Jesus as it were, as we are tonight, as a preacher preaches with our Bibles open, as we view Jesus through a cracked, dusty, opaque window. That window and, that, and all that murk and all that cracked uh, effects and the rippled effect of the glass, as it were, will all be taken away. Face to face, the bridegroom and the bride, the veil lifted, the lover and the loved. A day when we no longer have to open our Bibles and study them to find Jesus. A day when we no longer need to close our eyes in prayer in order to speak to him. A day when we are going to see him. And John tells us more. When he appears, we shall be like him. 
shall be like Jesus. How? In what way? And my answer is, and the Bible's answer is, as human beings, in every conceivable way, we will be like Jesus Christ. We will share all his privileges other than that we can and never will be the eternally begotten Son of the Father. That is his unique glory. But in terms of humanity being redeemed and sanctified to the highest pitch, that is something that we will share with him. As morally pure and righteous as he is, as sinless as he is, Resurrection bodies, every bit as imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual as the resurrection body of Jesus. And on that day, there will be nothing whatsoever about us that makes us, as we are now, ashamed, fearful, embarrassed, awkward, disappointed in his presence. Just as Adam and Eve, in the last verse of the second chapter of Genesis, in the last verse before the fall, were there in that absolute openness with one another and without any sense of shame in their love and knowledge of one another. So that will be Jesus Christ and the church on that final day. We and him together without shame, in the paradise of God. Now, here, in any church on earth, in any era of the church age, whatever kind of ministry is going on, in times of revival, in times of awakening, in times of blessing, even then, we only know in part. We only know him in part. You can be in prayerful ecstasy, and you only know him in part. But then we shall know fully and be fully known. And on that day there will be no more wondering what we should pray for. Struggling to find the words to pray. Finding ourselves unable to get started because we are assailed with doubt or fear or guilt or awkwardness or a wandering mind. We all know that, don't we? We decide we need to pray and we get down to pray, but our minds are on everything and anything but on prayer and on the Lord. We're distracted. We're confused. We're worried. We're anxious. We're fearful. We don't feel we're able to pray. We can't find the words and we sometimes give up. But there'll be no more of that. Why not? Oh, do you see how verse 2 concludes? I've often thought about this. It's almost as if verse 2, I used to read it and think, does it really end on a high, or is the high the bit before the end? You know what I'm saying? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's the thing, isn't it? Uh, Because we shall see him as he is. No, that's getting the emphasis the wrong way around. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is the climax. That's the great thing. That's the wonderful thing. 
the climax of verse 2 falls not so much on what we have become, but on the Christ who is right in front of our eyes. The greatest glory and wonder of the new and finished creation is seeing Jesus. Entering into that full, consummated relationship and marriage that never ends, that never fails to satisfy, and never fails to delight. Archibald Alexander, Princeton president in the early 1800s, he's written a wonderful book on religious experience, many chapters that are so breathtaking, and he says that that new age, it will be like we all become children again. And parents will know that they watch children in their early years beginning to to see and grasp and understand this world they're now in. They they develop a a recognition of things. They they start to see things and notice things and, and handle things, and their understanding grows, and it's a delight for parents to see. And he says, Archibald Alexander, it'll be like that for us. As we see Jesus, as we as we see him as he really is, there will be a better, altogether new childhood, as it were, for us, an education, a growing in glory that we will enjoy forever. Psalm 17 ends with these words. Psalm 17. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. What are you looking forward to the most? This summer holidays? September back at school? Maybe not. The day when everything seems okay at work and at home? The day you retire? The day that you're awaiting with great keenness and Holiday, a new home. What are you looking forward to? There's nothing. There can be nothing for the Christian, for the child of God, like seeing the face of Jesus Christ. My final comment, just very briefly to see verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, we are still in this world of faith. We don't yet see Jesus with our eyes. But the Spirit who gives us faith is the one who gives us hope and stirs up our hope. And you know, the biblical definition of hope is not something speculative and uncertain and maybe There's nothing maybe about this. There's no perhaps about this. This is substantial and real. Jesus Christ is too good and too loving and too true to fail anybody who puts their trust in him. Have this hope before your eyes that one day we are going to be in the everlasting presence of Jesus Christ. Make him our goal, our target, our desire. And says John, If we thus hope in him, we are purified. We are made more and more ready for that day when 
when it comes. And come it will. Praise God for that. We'll pray together. Oh Lord our God, you have blessed us beyond what our words can express. One day our eyes will be taken up with your face, that face that is all the glory of God. And, O oh Lord, for such a day we hope and long and wait. Father, prepare us. O oh Lord, work in us. O oh Lord, nurture and feed our faith and hope in the Saviour day by day until that day when we see him and we are satisfied as never before but satisfied in such a way that the satisfaction never grows dim never grows weak never falters nor fades we come now and pray that you would O oh lord do these things and we know that you will deliver on all your promises faithful and changing god we pray all of this in jesus name amen